0: in a downtown glass-and-steel skyscraper who helped me to procure a legal birth certificate, social security card, and driver's license. A good portion of my old wealth was on its way to New Orleans from coded accounts in the Immortal Bank of London and the Rothschild Bank. But more important, I was swimming in realizations. I knew that everything the Amplified Voices had told me about the 20th century was true. People were adventurous and erotic again, the way they'd been in the old days, before the great middle-class revolutions of the late 1700s. The women especially, ah, the women were glorious, naked in the spring warmth, as they'd been under the Egyptian pharaohs, in skimpy short skirts and tunic-like dresses, or wearing men's pants and shirts skin-tight over their curvaceous bodies, if they pleased. For the first time in history, perhaps, they were as strong and as interesting as the men. Ah, the twentieth century. Ah, the turn of the great wheel. It was time to call upon my old neighbours the rock band called Satan's Night Out. At six-thirty on a hot, sticky Saturday night, I rang the doorbell of the attic music studio. The beautiful young mortals were all lying about in their rainbow-coloured silk shirts and skin-tight dungarees, complaining about their rotten luck getting gigs in the South. I was overcome with excitement and love just looking at them, Alex and Larry, and the succulent little tough cookie. And in an eerie moment in which the world seemed to stand still beneath me, I told them what I was. Never in two hundred years had I spoken it to anyone who had not been marked to become one of us. And now I said it clearly and distinctly to these handsome young creatures. I told them I wanted to sing with them, that if they were to trust me, we would all be rich and famous. Their eyes misted as they looked at me, and the little twentieth-century chamber of stucco and pasteboard rang with their laughter and delight. Then came a shock I'd never in my strangest dreams anticipated. They recognized my name when I told them it was Lestat. In fact, they thought it was delightful that I wasn't just pretending to be any vampire, or Count Dracula, everybody was sick of Count Dracula. They thought it was marvellous that I was pretending to be the Vampire Lestat. Pretending to be the Vampire Lestat? I asked. From the other room they brought a book, a small pulp paper novel that was falling to pieces. Interview with the vampire. With their permission, I went into the other room, stretched out on their bed, and began to read. When I was halfway finished, I took the book with me and left the house. I stood stock still beneath a street lamp with the book until I finished it. I didn't go back to Satan's Night Out until the first contracts were worked out. Dates were fixed, studios rented, letters of agreement exchanged. Then my young lawyer, Christine, came with me, and we had a great leviathan of a limousine for my darling young musicians, Larry and Alex and Tough Cookie. We had breathtaking sums of money. We had papers to be signed. And when they'd gone off in the velvet-lined motorcoach... I moved alone through the balmy night towards St. Charles Avenue and thought about the danger facing them, my little mortal friends. Well, I would protect them from other immortals as best I could. And if the immortals were anything like they used to be in the old days, they'd never risk a vulgar struggle with a human force like that. Out of the gloomy waste of Canal Street, I went back up the stairs to my rooms in the old-fashioned French Quarter Hotel. On the giant television set, I played the cassette of the beautiful Visconti film, Death in Venice. An actor said at one point that evil was a necessity. It was food for genius. I wish it were true. Then I could just be Lestat, the monster, couldn't I? And I was always so good at being a monster. Oh, well. I put a fresh disk into the portable computer word processor, and I started to write the story of my life. In the winter of my twenty-first year, I went out alone on horseback to kill a pack of wolves. This was on my father's land, in the Auvergne, in France, and these were the last decades before the French Revolution. It was the worst winter that I could remember and the wolves were stealing the sheep from our peasants, and even running at night through the streets of the village. These were bitter years for me. My father was the Marquis, and I was the seventh son and the youngest of the three who had lived to manhood. I had no claim to the title or the land, and no prospects. Even in a rich family, it might have been that way for a younger boy, but our wealth had been used up long ago. In this dim and old-fashioned world, I had become the hunter. It was natural that the villagers should come to me complaining about the wolves and expecting me to hunt them. It was my duty. So early on a very cold morning in January, I armed myself to kill the wolves one by one. I had three flintlock guns and an excellent flintlock rifle, and these I took with me, as well as my muskets and my father's sword. But just before leaving the castle... I added to this little arsenal an ancient weapon that I'd never bothered with before, a large flail, that is, an iron ball attached to a chain that had been hanging on the wall for generations. Now remember, this was the 18th century, and here I was going out to hunt in rawhide boots and buckskin coat with my guns and this ancient weapon tied to the saddle and my two biggest mastiffs beside me in their spiked collars. It might as well have been the Middle Ages.' And I knew enough of the fancy-dressed travellers on the post-road to feel it rather keenly. Well, I rode for about an hour up the slopes. I came to a small valley, and as I started across the broad empty field towards the barren wood, I saw three giant gray wolves streaking straight towards me over the snow. I broke into a run for the forest. It seemed I would make it before the three reached me, but the wolves are extremely clever animals, and as I rode hard for the trees, I saw the rest of the pack, some five full-grown animals, coming out ahead of me to my left. It was an ambush. I could never make the forest in time. I got ready for battle. With the rifle I took aim and brought down a big male, and had time to reload as my dogs and the pack attacked each other. And in this first skirmish, my dogs brought down one of the wolves. I fired and brought down a second. But the pack had surrounded the dogs. I saw the smaller dog go down with its hind legs broken. The second dog stood off the pack as it tried to devour the dying animal. But within two minutes, the pack had torn open the second dog's belly and killed it. And when I saw my dogs die, I knew for the first time what I had taken on and what might happen. Four wolves lay dead, another was crippled fatally, but that left three, one of whom had stopped in the savage feasting upon the dogs, to fix its slanted eyes on me. Jerking the reins hard, I let my horse run as she wanted, straight for the cover of the forest— I didn't look back even when I heard the growling and snapping, but then I felt the teeth graze my ankle. I drew the other musket, turned to the left, and fired. It seemed the wolf went up on its hind legs, but it was too quickly out of sight, and my mare reared again. I felt her back legs give out under me. I was off her before she went down. I had one more loaded gun. I took dead aim at the wolf who bore down on me and blasted away the top of his skull. It was now two animals. The horse was giving off a deep, rattling whinny that rose to a trumpeting shriek, the worst sound I had ever heard from any living thing. The wolves were closing in on me. There was no time to load the one gun I had left. I started swinging the flail so that the spiked ball went around in a circle. I aimed for the side of the animal's jaw, bashing it with all my strength and only grazing it. As the first wolf darted off, the second danced towards me, and then back again. I was pivoting, thrusting, struggling back. Probably it was no more than half an hour that this game went on. But there is no measuring time like that. And with my legs giving out, I made one last desperate gamble. I stood stock still, weapons at my side, and they came in for the kill. At the last second I swung the flail, felt the ball crack the bone, saw the head jerk upwards to the right, and with the sword I slashed the wolf's neck open. The other wolf was at my side. I felt its teeth rip into my breeches, and springing back, I had enough room for the sword and thrust it straight into the animal's chest to the hilt. That was the end of it. The pack was dead. I was alive. And the only sound in the empty, snow-covered valley was the rattling shriek of my dying mare. The sound bounced off the mountains, and I stood staring at her dark, broken body against the whiteness of the snow. She was like an insect, half mashed into the floor. But she was no insect. I took my rifle from the saddle. I loaded it. And as she lay tossing her head, trying vainly to lift herself once more with that shrill trumpeting, I shot her through the heart. She lay still and dead, and the blood ran out of her, and the valley was quiet. I heard an ugly, choking noise, and I saw the vomit spewing out onto the snow, before I realized it was mine. I went among the dead wolves, back to the one who had almost killed me, the last one, and slung him up to carry over my shoulders and started the trek home. By the time I reached the castle gates, I think I was not Lestat. I was someone else altogether, staggering into the great hall. I was beyond exhaustion. And though I began to speak... "'as I saw my brothers rising from the table "'and my mother patting my father, "'who was blind already then "'and wanted to know what was happening. "'I don't know what I said. "'But my brother Augustin "'suddenly brought me to myself. "'He quite distinctly broke "'the low monotone of my words with his own. "'You little bastard,' he said coldly. "'You didn't kill eight wolves.' "'His face had an ugly, disgusted look to it but the remarkable thing was this almost as soon as he spoke these words he realized that he'd made a mistake he started to babble something about how incredible and i must almost have been killed and all that sort of thing but it was no good what had happened in that one moment was irreparable and the next thing i knew i was lying alone in my room I didn't have the dogs in bed with me as always in winter because the dogs were dead i climbed filthy and bloody under the bed covers and went into a deep sleep for days i stayed in my room maybe a week passed and then my mother came quietly and almost stealthily into the room my mother coming at last as I suppose I should have expected. There was a powerful understanding between us. When I tried to escape this house and been brought back, it was she who had shown me the way out of the pain that followed. Her first intervention had come when I was twelve, and the old parish priest wanted to send me to school at the nearby monastery. My father said no, that I could learn all I needed in my own house, but my mother roused herself from her books to do battle with him. I would go, she said, if I wanted to, and she sold one of her jewels to pay for my books and clothing. I loved the monastery school. Within a month, I declared my vocation. I wanted to spend my life in those immaculate cloisters, in the library, writing on parchment and learning to read the ancient books. The Father Superior wrote to ask my father's permission, and frankly, I thought my father would be glad to be rid of me. But three days later, my brothers arrived to take me home. I cried and begged to stay. But there was nothing the Father Superior could do. And as soon as we reached the castle, they took away my books and locked me up. I didn't understand why they were so angry. Then my brother, Augustin, started coming in and talking to me. He'd circled the point at first, but what came clear finally was that no member of a great French family was going to be a poor teaching brother. How could I have misunderstood everything so completely? Translate that to mean this. We have no money to launch a real ecclesiastical career for you, to make you a bishop or a cardinal as befits our rank. So you have to live out your life here as an illiterate and a beggar. After I got to understand it, I wept, right at the supper-table, and was sent to my room for it. Then my mother came to me. She took me on a journey. We rode for half a day before we reached the impressive chateau of a neighbouring lord, and there she and the gentleman took me out to the kennel, where she told me to choose my favourites from a new litter of mastiff puppies. And within a month my mother also bought for me...